0: My guest today is Adam Crichton, the Washington correspondent with the Australian newspaper. Adam's appeared on this show twice before and as a guest during a special panel discussion last year with Gigi Foster and David Lionhelm, where we discuss the Australian government's response to COVID-19. You can find that episode and more on Spotify as well as at nickholt.substack.com. Adam joins me now from Washington. Adam, good to talk to you again. Thanks for
1: having me, Nick.
0: So you wrote a story recently, which I'm sure a lot, or at least some of my listeners have read. uh, It almost deserves a Walkley Award for the headline alone, which was, it's hard to recall a period in history in which experts have been so comprehensively wrong on so many topics in such a short time.
1: I think that was the first sentence, actually. And I wrote that, not the (laughs) sub-editor.
0: A great first sentence. There you go. Talk briefly about what this story is about. It's a big idea, obviously.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, I uh, recall the global financial crisis and how wrong experts got that. And that had been on the back of my mind for a few months, actually, while I was kind of mulling over this column in my head uh, that they were wrong about that. And then I you know, thought that the experts were very wrong too, not just in the economic field, but also in the military field uh, we saw before then uh, the Iraq war, the so called weapons of mass destruction. That was another really big data point, uh, I guess, in the last 20 years, where in one case economists and the other case military strategists or intelligence people, whatever you want to call them, uh, got something very wrong. And then I just thought, you know, in the past couple of years, you've had, you know, a series of very wrong calls at least in my view, and I think most people that read the column would probably agree in their view as well, uh, calls by experts. And so I just thought it was worth to, you know, to bring three very different areas. In the column I spoke about COVID broadly and I spoke about the Russia-Ukraine situation and I spoke about inflation, and, you know, three very different topics, but I think in in every topic you've had experts be very, very wrong in various ways repeatedly in the media and I'd argue it's been the most humiliating two years for experts in modern history, I would say.
0: As a journalist, what are you taught specifically about experts as a source?
1: Well, look, I never studied journalism, so, so maybe I should have told you that before we you know we chatted. I mean I studied economics. I mean, you know maybe this has made me you know made me different in the first place because I didn't study journalism. I came to journalism when I was you know thirty one, which was relatively late. I'd studied economics for, gosh, I think six years at university, so I always had a sense of numbers and data and wanting to look at graphs. I think graphs are the big thing. I mean, I always like to see graphs. Right. uh, Which, you know, I mean, I started my career at the Reserve Bank and we always were very good at graphs. And so I've always liked to have a handle on what I'm actually writing about myself, not just be told what to write. And frankly, as a journalist, if I don't understand it, I just can't write it. Uh, so I'll never write down something that I don't myself understand. Um, and I'm not at all trying to cast aspersions on other journalists at all. But, uh, you know, I think uh, probably some journalists are a bit less rigorous than me and mm. uh, and also you're more willing just to go along with the groupthink of what, you know, on a particular topic. Uh, but, you know, to your more a direct question about what am I told to do, well, I mean, you know, nothing. I mean, you know, so many people criticise uh media companies for having a particular political line. And sure they do in their editorials, but I but I honestly think the journalists are not, you know, they're not told what to write. I mean, I've never been told what to write. Uh so that always saddens and frustrates me on social media when, you know, it's implied that I'm, you know, doing the bidding of someone else. It's just, you know, completely absurd. Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. Completely absurd. I mean he'd barely know who I was. Uh you know, he's got I'm sure he's got better things to be doing he's than-
0: writing your checks.
1: That's right. That's that's right. So, uh, you know, in a perfect world, we'd have more time to think about our stories. But, you know, the economic situation in, in media is people are writing more and more stories uh, because they have to, because you're not just feeding a printed product anymore. You're feeding the internet, which is insatiable. You know, there's no limit to the number of stories that can go up. There's no limit to how long they have to be. So that's put a lot of pressure on journalists to to increase their output. And I think it's probably fair to say, I don't think it's You know, that, that, you know, maybe in in some areas, quality might have fallen a little bit. Uh, But that's, you know, that's inevitable. I don't think I'm giving away any secrets.
0: You mentioned graphs there. I think that's really interesting. I'd extend that to, you know, obviously statistics and uh, data. And if we look at COVID 19, what was interesting was that you mentioned it, you know, if I don't understand it, then something's up. Yet we were told as rational beings during COVID that y- you can't understand it because you're not a scientist?
1: Well, I just think that's complete rubbish. I mean, and, and you know, I, I think I think anyone that's educated and is enumerate and can read uh, should be able to make their own views on most things. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, quantum physics here. We're talking about the spread of disease, which we all have firsthand experience with. You know, we've all had diseases. We've all caught them. We've all recovered from them. Uh, and, you know, we're not talking about a theoretical uh, thing either. I mean, after six to 12 months, we all had experience, we all had real-life experience of observing the world of our family and friends, and we could make decisions about, you know, how many people had died, you know, who had died. You know, we could have formed our own views on those things. And, you know, what's kind of shocked me the most is that so few people kind of did that. I mean, even when the, you know the evidence was blindingly in front of them that this was not... particularly lethal disease i mean it's just not i mean it's extraordinary that some people are probably going to think that's a controversial statement but honestly if you look at the sweep of history you know as far as pandemics go this is not a you know it's not a lethal disease right i mean some people don't even know they have it uh i mean (laughs) that's you know that is not the hallmark of a lethal disease if you don't know you have it um but despite that and, and you know despite the fact that uh that hardly anyone even knows anyone who's died of it there's, there's still this uh, belief, I guess, if, that this is an incredibly dangerous thing that we have to, you know, uh, go to great lengths to try to stop, even if the lengths are extraordinarily costly in every other way. And I, I still don't quite understand that.
0: And that is one of the implications right there of dodgy predictions by experts, right? but for such a long period of time is what was quite extraordinary with covid and, and still today i feel like they could quite easily if they wanted to ramp up the headlines again in the main, in the news tv news mostly um and people would probably be quite quite afraid again which is not a, not a nice thing to to see
1: well, you know, I think I think less. I mean, I saw a headline just yesterday in The Guardian back home just saying that, you know, some experts, uh, you know, want masks to come back and then some politicians basically saying, oh, we don't think we could do it or or it's not feasible, it's not realistic. And I think, you know, the inference from those statements is that the whole thing was always about politics. It was never about science. The only reason all of those rules could be put in place was because people wanted them. And now that they don't want them, they're not put in place. And I guess that's what you expect in a democracy. Uh, So, you know, on one level, that's a good thing, but I just think the idea that those lockdowns and all those mandates and all that insanity of contact tracing was somehow scientific and was not related to how popular it was is completely naive. So I think, you know, I think the so-called expert class now, the medical experts who are saying, oh, we need to lock down again or we need to force vaccination or whatever, And they're realising that the politicians are no longer responsive. Well, they're not responsive because they know if they do it, they'll lose office.
0: Yeah, that's right. So
1: so it was never about science, is my point. It was always that people, you know, had the crap scared out of them, basically, by the media from March 2020. And it was very powerful, 24-7, you know, every single social media channel, you know, telling them that the plague had arrived. And that was extraordinarily powerful. And it, I mean it saddens me greatly that people didn't do their own research and realize that it wasn't, but they but you know, but that's the way it is. And you know, it scared them. And so politicians had to react and they they did a lot of crazy things in hindsight. You know, like I think we're starting to realize now, you know, kind of almost two and a half years later, that it was a very crazy period. And I think, I think as the years go on and we look back, especially on 2020, I think we'll just be shocked at the things that happened, you know, the closure of beaches and you know, putting markings on people who weren't vaccinated and just you know, just sheer insanity.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a actually an optim very optimistic take. And I, I you know I go along with it because that's what I would like to see happen. Well maybe I've been in the
1: US too long. It will be in Florida and Texas. But maybe <laughs> not Australia.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know, man. <laughs> but interestingly with experts, we saw as well during COVID, we saw um, you know, so you mentioned these the people that were reading this and we're in fear and whatnot i think in a lot of ways those people uh by believing experts not doing their own research you should be able to trust experts right
1: yeah well well, i think the important thing is to realize that experts have their own personal incentives and and you know and they're the experts that the media chooses you know that the outlet chooses uh to amplify so so let's say that in you know every field of expertise there are 100 experts well, it's only three of them that are ever in the media, right? The other 97 stay out of it. So so I think that is a very important point to make. So, you know, there's there's a perception that, you know, academics say this. You know, most academics just don't want anything to do with public debate and they have their own views uh, and don't want to get involved. And, yeah, you, know, you might say that's a sad thing, but that's a whole other debate. The point I'm trying to make here is is the so-called experts who are routinely quoted, say, you know, say in Australia, related to COVID, and there's, what, six of them? That's a very, very small number. You know, I mean, I'm exaggerating slightly. Maybe there's 12. But, you know, it's a small number of people from a very large number of scientists. Yes. And I would have no doubt that a lot of those scientists would completely disagree with those experts. But they're not chosen by the media, and that's probably you know, because some mix of they don't want to be quoted and also the media might not might not like what they're going to say, you know, it could be boring. Like, well, we don't know, <laughs> which is probably the honest answer, but we don't know is not very sexy.
0: No, it's not. And also that 3%, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with that figure for the sake of this argument, that 3% that you've mentioned, the percentage within that 3% that actively did say, no, this is wrong, were then sort of demonized by the media and the other experts
1: yes yes and that's 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 a very good point so so it was quickly scientists quickly learned that if they disagreed with the authoritarian response with the collectivist you know surveillance state that they would be attacked as you know as enemies of the public and that is basically what happened it was you know it was kind of I mean, it wasn't as bad, it's, but it's the sort of thing you see in authoritarian states throughout history where there's a minority that dares speak out and, it, you know, it, it soon learns that it's very dangerous to speak out, both in a financial sense and and sometimes even otherwise. Mm. So I was quite shocked, just the vitriol that was directed at, you know, at well-meaning people who spoke out. I mean, I remember when the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, uh, I think he was English guy, fairly, fairly new and I think in 2020, he said something, just, just a completely obvious statement. I think he mentioned the statistical value of life concept in an interview, which is basic and obvious and it's been around for decades. And he was viciously attacked as a grandma killer, viciously, you know, very esteemed scientist. Mm. And I've got no doubt it's the last time he'll be saying anything on anything in public uh, that is moderately controversial. So So it ended up after all that, that the only so-called experts who were, who are being quoted, uh, just wanted maximum intervention by government all the time. Yes, yes. All the time. And that was the easy thing to say. She could say, well, you know, I'm for saving lives, you know, and I want the government to do everything it can to save lives. And if you have, you know, if they have the intelligence of an eight-year-old, then that sounds very appealing, right? It does. And it just shocked me. It shocked me how many journalists had the intelligence of an eight-year-old throughout this whole thing. But, you know, you go to a press conference and you would berate the premier for not doing more. Yeah. Premiers probably knew deep down, at least some of them, that what they were doing was just, you know, it was purely performative and very costly. But because journalists, you know, trenchantly demanded it, they had no choice. Otherwise they'd be accused of killing grandma. I mean, it really was a debate that was at the level
0: of eight or nine-year-olds. It was, it was just appalling. It was. I used to make the joke that they'd, the journalists would turn up to the press conferences with their pen and pad and sit there like little school kids and go, how many cases are there today? Seven. How scared should we be? Very. Yeah, that's, that's
1: kind of right. I mean, it's, I, mean, I mean, you've got to have some sympathy for the media because that's its financial incentive. That's its economic incentive, right, to, uh, you know, to get eyeballs. But mm. I just wish the public were more aware of that right, that that's the incentive. <laughs> I think some people are, but I think some people are naive. Part of me, you know, thinks it would have been nice if the media wasn't allowed to report on COVID and the world would have been a much nicer, better place and we'd have a lot less debt and we'd probably have the same amount of death. In my view, uh, but but of course, you know, you can't silence the press. That's Radical
0: the, idea, Crichton.
1: Well, you know, but of course, you know, you can't silence the press. I love it. I mean, it's got to you know, you've got to have a free press, and so this is an inevitable consequence of a free press. It's one of the downsides that 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 a free press will panic and scare people in its own financial interest, um, and that's you know, you've just got to be aware of that. That's that's just the way of the world. You know, it's not unique to Australia. It's it's in every country.
0: That's right, and also I think that we need to include in that press um the the group of people that were ter- genuinely genuinely quite terrified by this virus the ones the same ones that we were um mentioning earlier
1: yeah i i think
0: i think some some of them would have been concerned
1: look i mean some older journalists maybe were personally concerned i mean i, mean, I never had these you know these kind of discussions besides i'd kind of left the country by the beginning of 2021 but but then, but then there were other older journalists who who you'd think would be vulnerable to COVID who, who were arguing the similar thing to me, you know, such as Steve Waterson at the Australian uh, you know, probably the most eloquent uh exemplar of that. Um he wrote some beautiful pieces um throughout the last two years. Uh so yeah, so it you know it didn't necessarily line up with with age or vulnerability. I think it was more of an intellectual viewpoint. And I think the fascinating thing out of the whole two years, and this is something for me personally too, is that we all got to learn about ourselves more, because we'd never had a crisis like this and we never really knew where we stood in relation to the individual versus the state, but now we all know, right? We all know who believes what, uh, kind of according to their response uh, to COVID. So there are people that, that don't think individual rights matter very much and that it's ultimately the government that should be obeyed, and there are those are others a much smaller group, sadly, in my view, who think, no, no, these individual rights really matter, Uh, you know, even if, even if the government can improve the situation by, you know, closing borders or locking people up or doing whatever, you still shouldn't do it. Uh And, you know, that's, you know, there are two camps and I think we all know who's in what camp now.
0: When you're talking about these camps, do you, did you glean this from uh how people reacted to public opinion
1: uh well yeah just from uh yeah so i think the you know the camp that thinks the government should be obeyed is is clearly the larger camp (laughs) i mean that's that is very clear uh like in australia in particular um but uh you know then there's the you know there's a human rights camp which i guess i'm in that that says no there are some things that government just should not be able to do probably including those things listed in Victoria's uh, human rights legislation, which was, uh, you know, clearly just just a piece of paper that that meant nothing, that uh, meant nothing. But in the US, you know, they have a more serious take on their constitution and it was a lot harder to do yeah those things in the US, uh, much harder. Yes. And they were challenged legally and some of the challenges won. And in some states, of course, you know, there were essentially no restrictions at all for the whole time. And I think that kind of largely went down to, to the... The human rights camp if you like to use to use my term from before being a lot bigger over here than it is in Australia. Um, but yeah, it, I mean it kind of surprised me. I'm not going to name names of different journalists, but it was it was just interesting, let's say, to see what different journalists argued in Australia on this issue.
0: The reason I asked that, just to sort of wrap up this expert section and then uh, I'll ask you for your comment on one more thing before we leave. Uh sure. The the fascinating thing to me is that during the the pandemic, we've mentioned the scientific experts, but what what happened is I noticed that all of a sudden you had career politicians superseding scientists to become experts themselves, uh, commenting on an extraordinary range of Of um, health measures that they knew absolutely nothing about. And I'll just give you one example off the top of my head. And that's Stephen Miles, who's the deputy premier for Queensland. Stephen Miles was on all over social media last year, calling um, ivermectin um, horse paste. That's the, the antiviral. His expertise is a PhD in trade union renewal in Australia, rebuilding worker involvement. And he's giving advice on what potentially could save lives.
1: Yeah, look, actually, I'm glad you brought up that drug and and what's the other one called? uh, Hydroxychloroquine. Um, I never got the vitriol directed at those drugs by most, most mainstream journalists and politicians. Like, you know, they're drugs that have been around for a long time, humans have used them. If someone wants to use it on themselves, then, you know, that's fine. Who cares, right? I mean, if some doctor and some patient decide amongst themselves that that's what they want to do, I I don't see in a free society why that shouldn't be allowed. That's that's the way it used to be. But now you've got to the point where the state is actually criminalising doctors uh, for things that they want to recommend to patients. It's very strange, very, very weird. I think that's a very strange turn in medicine, how now it's the state that makes the decision about at least governs the relationship between doctor and patient, which used to be a private matter. And
0: you would think that if the chief concern is to um, unburden the the health care sector, you'd be trying everything, right?
1: Yeah, and and actually that just makes it just reminds me of the you know the extraordinary obesity crisis and the you know, chronic ill health, both, you know especially in America, but also in Australia too. And so yeah. isn't it just farcical to think that these so called health experts are really that concerned at all about public health, when you know there's so many other shocking things that happen, but they're just ignored or they just continue, and yet on this one particular issue, you know the, the most extreme actions were carried about. Imaginable with immense costs, uh, but they don't talk about anything like you know sugar or, or obesity or anything like that. I mean, if you were really concerned about public health, you know, you'd ban sugar, right? But but no one suggests that.
0: No, we, exactly. We, I mean, we've got also a, a a very dire dementia pandemic here or epidemic here.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, there's some. There's some. think there's some evidence that's related to to sugar consumption throughout life as well i think you know i think sugar is a real poison but no one talks about
0: it but you go to the the shopping aisles and there's there's your real epidemic
1: yeah my you know my i wrote an article in 2007 in in the us actually that kind of mocked the idea of of those sorts of taxes but but i must say i've I've, you know i've changed my mind you know i was wrong on that you know but i think if I think some of these foods are so dangerous that they should be heavily taxed. I mean, I wouldn't ban them, but, you know, I'd rather tax sugar. (laughs) You know, I think that would save a lot more lives overall than these crazy things on COVID. Ice cream at $20 a pint? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, making things more expensive does work. I mean, whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or whatever. I mean, I wouldn't ban those things, but I I think that there's public good in making them more expensive. So I've changed my view on that. Maybe that's because I've lived in the US and I just see every single day the most shocking sights of <laughs> of ill health, and it's all because of sugar, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now that you've you reported heavily during COVID nineteen um, from the very beginning, which you know, I, I would call the storm. Yeah, being in the storm, I was in it myself. So coming out of that now, uh, as it. Uh, the debris starts to clear. I just wanted to get your sort of quick take on what it's like as a journalist, well, what it was like for you as a journalist working in the, in the storm and now working after the storm as it's passed.
1: Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it was exciting on one level back in 2020. You know, we were all working from home straight away. This is the lockdown from, you know, from late March. So there was little one-on-one kind of interaction, I guess, with other people. But but yeah, certainly it was it was exciting and and engrossing. It was engrossing as an as an intellectual topic. And, and it was also very important. The first time in my 10 years as a journalist that I'd really written about something that was really important, frankly. <laughs> I mean, that actually, you know, where government policy was affecting people's lives in major ways. You know, normally it's just writing about GDP or the jobs figures or whatever and, you know, maybe some tax is going to go up or come down. But, you know, basically that's, that's not really that relevant to most people's lives. But this was, and it was an engrossing topic, and I got really into it. I wrote a lot about it. And and uh, learned a lot in the process. And, you know, the storm, the eye of the storm, if you like, it lasted a long time. I mean, I would say arguably, you know, until the middle of last year or maybe September, October last year, you know, the issue still dominated the world's media more than anything else. Um, and I guess, you know, now, since the start of the year, you know, COVID's kind of not on the front page anymore, so I guess it's after the storm now. And you know, for journalists, it's it's a for someone who was writing about it a lot, you know, almost it's a little bit, uh, you know, sad in a way that this this kind of engrossing, fascinating topic has gone away. Uh, but it has, and of course, you know, of course, I'm being facetious. It's a good thing that it's gone away. But but uh, so now I'm kind of pivoting to other issues as a journalist, and and you know, trying uh, trying to do that. I mean, I think the next big issue is going to be energy policy. Uh, you know, which I actually talked about in the column and something that experts have, have really been stuffing up or at least some experts. So, yeah, so I guess, you know, we are out of the storm now of COVID. I don't, you know, fingers crossed there won't be another more lethal variant that sweeps the world, but you never know, there could be. But on a personal note, I feel extremely vindicated by the stance that I took and, it, you know, it may not have worked out that way. I mean, it could have worked out terribly for my career, but actually I think that I've you know done very well out of it, uh, you know not through genius, just through actually reading the pandemic plans that were written before twenty twenty and basically arguing those and you know shock you know shock horror that 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 proved to be a very sensible position to take. that's right. So I think it's you know i think I think everything I wrote is going to look very good in the next two or three years as we look back. and if you're on Twitter, you'll realize that I haven't been shy in saying that and sometimes even retweeting my old articles and I must say on the other side of the equation you don't see much of that at all in fact you're seeing tweets deleted yeah right right you're seeing people change their position and say that they never really uh said that schools should have been shut down or they weren't really supporters of lockdowns or they never really supported you know forced vaccination so I think you're going to get like a lot of that over the next few years, but I won't have to change my view on anything.
0: <laughs> Perfect, and that may be the way that the experts die at natural causes, and the Adam Crichtons, and I'll throw myself in the Nick Holt rise to the yes. rise to the top. Now you've done a really good job, and as you said, I was, um, I, I've, I was, the same in my convictions with COVID. It wasn't because I was a soothsayer; I, I was simply listening to um and reading information that was the, considered the gold standard prior to what to this happening uh, and and nothing really made sense from yes yeah.
1: yeah that's the yeah no that's that's the number one most fascinating issue of the whole two years and that's and that's saying something because there are a lot of issues but just the complete disconnect between state of the art pandemic plans that were written for viruses exactly like the coronavirus and that we didn't follow them at all we did what China did and I think that will be seen as a you know extraordinary pivot point, I would say, in world history and a huge era.
0: But and might I add, never never done before in human history that lockdown, those lockdowns.
1: Yeah, and, and you know those pandemic plans were written by experts too. Let's you know let's forget, but they were written by experts in an atmosphere of calm deliberation and objectivity, not not in the middle of of a collective political hysteria, where suddenly it was all about being seen to be virtuous and to get on the TV and to and to advocate the most authoritarian insanity we've ever seen in the West. But, you know, thankfully, those pandemic plans are still on the internet and you can go and read them and and just be shocked as I am. And actually, just, just one more point on those plans, they were written for viruses far more lethal than what we just experienced. Far more lethal. And even then, they still say things like, but you should never shut down schools. That's right. That's right. And you know, what do we do? We shut down schools for months or in the US, years in some states. Yeah, just at just shocking cost. I mean, it's just disgusting, actually. I don't, like, I'm getting angry talking about
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I don't want you to do that. But have to go and have a drink. Yeah, go have a drink. Vindica- vindication is um, the celebration of truth, I think. Hopefully, um, it'd be great to talk with you in November around the midterms because there's another entire episode on, on that. Yeah, that'd be great. Adam Crichton, the Washington, D.C. correspondent for the Australian newspaper. Thanks a lot for joining me.
1: Thanks very much, Nick, was a great chat.